Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to Better Make It Quick. I'm Washington Ginsburg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a part of a podcast called Better Than Yesterday, which has been making it better through fantastic conversations three times a week since 2013, Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest and Fridays with you. If you've been here for a while, thank you. If it's your first episode, thank you. Either way, there's a listener survey that I'd love you to get involved in. It, uh, you'll find the link in the show notes, but it does help us make a better show for you. In the long run, make sure that we, you know, make sure we get the right ads in and get the episodes you want to hear. And, you know, feedback is a breakfast of champions. You can click the link in your show notes and uh, it won't take you long. It takes about 10 minutes. So I... Uh, Look, I don't have much to say. I'm recording this on the, um, the 16th of October, 2023. So you'll have, probably have a fairly good idea about what happened on the 14th of October, 2023, which is when our nation had a referendum about enshrining a voice to parliament for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the constitution and the nation overwhelmingly voted no. Now, was it overwhelming? Okay, so 60% voted no. So that is a, that's a solid majority. And look, I'm not mad. I'm just quite disappointed. I'm extraordinarily disappointed. But I don't have too much to say about it right now because I can understand that like if I was to speak about it right now, there'd just be heaps of emotion uh, coming out of my voice. And I might say things that may not stand the test of time and certainly things that, yeah, as more information comes to light, may be incorrect. So I don't want to do that. But I'll just say that, look, I understand why it got voted down. I don't agree with why I got voted down, but I get it. And as I said, I'm not mad. I'm not sad. Well, I am sad. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And there's many people who've been on this podcast over the years whom I've been in a lot of contact with over the last weeks and months about this. Some of them even came on the show, which was wonderful. And one of those voices is Stan Grant. Let's have a listen back to when Stan Grant came on the show 
the last time. He's been on a, a number of times. So in 2021, Stan came on at the time. He was working for the ABC, but uh, he's now since taken a job as a professor at university. But Stan Grant is a journalist. He's an author. He's an international affairs analyst. As I said, he's a professor of global affairs, and he's a very proud Wiradjuri man. His father literally wrote the dictionary of the Wiradjuri language. He's an extraordinary man. And at the time Stan came around to chat, we were speaking about the most recent book he'd published called With the Falling of the Dusk, which is a deeply powerful and prophetic and poetic, beautifully written book, compelling read, all about the challenges facing our world. And it, it still is true to read the um, ideas in the book when you look at you know the world today. It's a very good lens to look at the world through, I found. We discuss his life experiences from what it was like being on the ground in the middle of conflict, the suffering of First Nations people, and just the beautiful acts of humanity that we experience. So Stan and I start this conversation with hope. Someone asked me the other day, where's the hope in the book? And I'm, I'm not a fan of hope. I think hope becomes something that put, you know, we can put off change because hope will take care of it or the politics of hope, all that stuff that, you know, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Well, it doesn't if you're an Aboriginal person locked up and dying young in this country or if you're an African-American who's still suffering the worst of COVID and dying under the boot of police. And, you know, it doesn't bend to justice. But what does redeem us are those beautiful moments of the human soul. And while I don't get in in the book into the sort of politics of hope and this idea that things will just get better, this Western idea of endless progress, which I think is just a, a mirage, I do see and I do write about those beautiful moments where the human soul can just rise above tyranny. There was this great moment when I was um, in Afghanistan, and I mentioned it in the book, and, you know, during the, the Taliban control and ta Taliban rule, they shut down all the music stores because they hate, the mu music was outlawed. The only music that was allowed was the unadorned human voice. And a lot of musicians were murdered. And after the Taliban were toppled, the music stores opened up again. And I walked into one one day in Kabul and uh, my cameraman was with me. He was an Iranian guy, so he could speak as Farsi and, and Pashto are very similar languages. And I saw on the on on the wall battered old guitar with rusted strings, and I I asked to get it down. I sort of managed to get it into something sort of reasonably tuneful, and and I asked where it came from, and he said it was left behind by a Soviet soldier in the invasion of Afghanistan in 1980. And in my hands, Osha, was the entire story from the invasion of the Soviet Empire, which ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. The rise of the Taliban, bin Laden and, and the Mujahideen who went there to fight the Soviets backed by American money that would then come back to bite the US. And it was all in my hands in this guitar. And I started playing Stairway to Heaven as everybody does in a guitar shop. And, and while I was playing it, this guy who I can't speak to, doesn't speak my language, different cultures, different religions, different countries, he gets down a traditional Afghan instrument called a rabab. And he starts picking out the melody of this song that he has never heard. And two men from different countries who don't speak to each other started speaking to each other through music. And it was a beautiful moment of the glory of the human soul to defy tyranny. Lovely. And I, that's, where, that's where hope lives. It lives in the rock pool with your son, and it lives in moments like that. Far out, man. 
Once again, Stan, I'm just I'm just swimming in the poetic majesty of the way you speak. I remember when you came to my house, I was holding onto the table with both hands, trying to keep track of like not to get lost, not to get lost in your dreamy eyes and the way you can tell a story. But you're right, man. That's a what an incredible experience yeah. you, you've had. The, yeah. the the book, A Chronicle of the World in Crisis, is the is a subtitle, and it did kind of make me think, though, you know, mm. as far back as we could write. And even before that, you know, the, the spoken word, isn't the fact, the idea, sorry, the story that we are in crisis and we have to act now, has that not right. always been the lever that power has used since time immemorial? Most definitely. Isn't crisis just, crisis is a part of the human existence? Always. And, and the ability to manage over crisis, I suppose, is what we're always striving for. Crisis is what got our ancestors moving. Crisis, you know, leaving behind drought or flood or disaster or war. What put my ancestors on a, on a raft to travel to this country 100,000 years ago to put me here today? The movement of people across the world is driven by a sense of crisis. And then when we meet each other, we meet each other with suspicion, often hatred or violence. And then out of that comes something new. And then that builds its own equilibrium and its own future. And I think when we get to the, to the advent of the West, which is really what I'm trying to grapple with in this book, is that the Western idea that comes out of the Enlightenment is that we can control all of that. We can control crisis. We can subdue nature. That we can bend time to our will. We can conquer history. The individual can live free of the chains of faith or family or government or nation or whatever it may be. A wonderful idea that also leads to alienation, destruction of the planet, destruction of other cultures, and now into this moment of existential crisis where so many of those things are coming back to bite the West and the rise of China as an authoritarian country with its own deep memories of Western humiliation is challenging the supremacy of the West, and the West is collapsing from within because of its own legacy of racism and sexism and deep-seated inequality, um, all of those things coming to the fore. So you're absolutely right, Osha. We are driven by a sense of crisis. It's what we do with that, how we manage that, how we try to subvert that, what utopian dreams we think that will deliver us from the darkness of that crisis. And where does it lead to? Inevitably, it leads to another crisis. Clearly, you can hear Stan Grant's a very intelligent man. And what I really appreciate in the conversation that he and I had is him talking about how we make our accommodations. What does he mean by that? Well, I'll, I'll let Stan explain it. I'm a privileged person. I've had an extraordinary life, and yet I come from a people and people in my own family who suffer every day because I am part of, I've made my accommodations with the oppressive system of white Australia. And yes, I speak back to it. And yes, I try to raise a voice for those who are voiceless and powerless, but I also know that I'm part of it. I'm part of that system. You know, I've walked past cousins of mine in the street begging for money, my own blood begging for money. And I think, what what are you doing, Stan? Who are you? What are it's obscene, and I know it's obscene, but this is the contradiction of our world. This is the messiness of our world. 
the best we can do, Oshawa, is to try to stay fixed on what justice is and what is right. And what is right is always right. And what is wrong is always wrong. It is wrong that Aboriginal people suffer here and there is no way around it. It was wrong to take this land of Aboriginal people, even though we've created this extraordinary country here anyway. And that contradiction is what Hegel talked about. It's the contradiction of our world that puts us on the highway of despair, as he said, but also can ultimately perhaps lead us to a greater sense of liberation. I haven't eaten, to, to be all self-righteous for a second, I haven't eaten, eaten meat for nearly 20 years. That's my personal choice. What uh, anybody else puts into their own mouth is completely up to them. Uh, but that's just my personal choice. But I found early on when I told people I didn't eat meat, the reaction yeah. that I got, which was often vociferous and almost aggressive, it struck me as an inner shame and an externalised anger because deep down they knew that, yeah, a cow is a sentient being. Yeah. A cow feels yeah. emotion. A cow yeah. is a smart animal. And I know that it's difficult for me to deal with destroying, killing that animal, chopping it up so I can eat it. And that anger kind of came out. The shame was it kind of externalised as anger. In a similar way, depending on who you talk to, there's an anger that comes out when it turns to justice and equity for Indigenous Australians. Yeah. Do you feel that anger is, is masking a shame that we kind of all know is there? Yeah, we know where Australia's illegitimate, and it has to be illegitimate while the, the rights of First Nations people go unaddressed. I mean, where the wrongs of the past are not addressed, well, we don't speak about those things. And too often, when we do come to talk about those things, it's always loaded up with, what, what do white people want out of this? You know, often truth will go hand in hand with reconciliation and healing. And I'm like, hang on, truth is just truth. And if it's a hard truth, and if it makes you uncomfortable, and if it makes you ashamed or guilty, live in that guilt and shame. Accept that. We are not rushing to healing and reconciliation. We have stuff to work through. So everything's, everything's contingent. Everything is conditional. Yes, we can deal with Aboriginal things, but as long as it's the right thing for us. I, I was in a conversation recently on Q&A and a very well-meaning, incredibly empathetic and supportive fellow panellist said, you know, we should have a treaty with Aboriginal people because it would be good for all of us. And I said, with respect, I really appreciate that sentiment, but a treaty for Aboriginal people is not dependent on making you feel good. There should be nothing in this for white people. There doesn't have to be. And it's the same thing with you. You're talking about you know, your choice to not eat meat and someone sort of feeling that you're making a judgment on them. It's the same thing with us. It's like our truth is somehow seen as a judgment on them. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. And I eat meat, Osher, and maybe, maybe there should be a judgment on me. Because that's my own cross to bear. I've got to look at that. I've got to, you know, I can put a steak in my mouth and say, wow, that tastes fantastic, and not give it a second thought. In the same way that a white person can live in Australia and go to the beach and have a barbecue and, you know, go watch their kids sport and kiss their kids to sleep each night and, and live a really good and virtuous life and not give Aboriginal people a second thought. Well, we should. And it is a reflection on us when we do not give those things another thought. But everything is contingent and conditional, and we look for ways to make ourselves feel more comfortable with what the things that we know are absolutely unacceptable. My great fear is, you know, we can deal with that at the level of um, whether you choose to eat meat or, or those sorts of things. What happens when it is, we are coming for you? We are coming for your kids. 
What happens when there's the knock at the door, as there was in Nazi Germany, and someone says, do you have Jewish people in the attic? You know, tell me the truth or I will kill your kids. We can ignore these things and put these things off, but eventually the cost becomes so high. We're talking about things that we think can't happen again in history, but it's not. They will happen. You know, history, this is a great saying I love. History never repeats, but it often rhymes. You spoke earlier about the 100 years of humiliation of China, and um, it's really interesting to observe this country that uses at the same time the humiliation of the British and the humiliation of the Japanese, the colonialism, the invasion, the exploitation. In one hand, they hold that, and in the other hand, they hold this where it's super, super powerful, like they play both victim and victor. What position does that put you in strategically as a country when it comes to making a move? Uh, You know, it's part of the whole idea of identity, I think. Identity, particularly when it is sort of strained through the crimes of history, you know, when your identity is forged in that sense of historical grievance and enmity, and resentment. It is both an empowering thing and it is also something that reveals very clearly your own vulnerability and your victimhood. We see this everywhere. I heard people in ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban say exactly the same thing. On the one hand, look how powerful we are. Look what we can do. On the other hand, look what you've done to us, you, you know, Westerners. You came in, you carved up our countries, you exploited our people. We're victims of the West. You hear it with the white supremacist movement. You know, we are victims. You will not replace us. You are destroying our culture hand in hand with white power. We're supreme. I mean, how can these two things exist? It's the same thing in China. We are powerful. We are China. We are back. We are the middle kingdom. We are the eternal empire. The emperor is the sun god. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world. Whoops, by the way, all you Westerns are out to get us, and we've been victims of the West, and you humiliated us. That's the engine of identity, that conflict between historical grievance and a return to some glorious age, some lost glory, some great moment that defined you, your greatness that you believe in and yet the humiliation that you suffered. We see this all the time when it comes to the weaponization and politicization of political identity. We're back in a moment with Stan Grant. If you want to support this show, the best way you can do is to maybe text someone or email someone or just tell someone about this episode. Just go, hey, there's an episode of Stan Grant from a while back. Yeah, it's interesting. A couple of years back, but it still bears true. Yeah, that sort of thing. But really helpful. Uh, Back in a moment with Stan Grant. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
This is Better Make It Quick. It's the Quick Wednesday edition of uh, an episode from a couple years back. Um, just a little taste of it. It's a much longer episode and a fantastic chat. I thoroughly recommend it, episode 381. But here's a couple of bit more of a taste of it. Stan Grant worked for a long time as a journalist. He worked overseas and he was on the ground in, in many conflict areas. And he's witnessed war zone conflict like you or I could barely even imagine. Uh, but he's also seen humanity and compassion in those places. He was kind enough to share one of the more beautiful moments that he'd, he'd witnessed when covering the news like that. I remember being in Pakistan during um, uh, Ramadan, uh, Ramazan as they call it there, and um, it was just uh, after the earthquake which killed 250,000 people. It was just catastrophic. And we were working with Islamic relief agencies and, um, you know, terrible things, dragging dead bodies out of buildings and just horrible things. And these doctors doing their best every day to sort of treat people and aid agencies doing their best to deliver food relief to people and not being able to drink or eat because it was Ramadan. They had to fast throughout the day. And I remember when it came to iftar, that breaking of the fast at dusk and sitting there with these people who were absolutely given their all everything that they have. And they turned to me and my crew and offered us the food first. We were their guests. And I'm like, I'm not worthy of this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just here filming. I'm not, I'm not saving anyone's life. I'm not bringing food to anybody. But they offered us the food first and they would not think of taking it until we had eaten first. That's extraordinary. I remember seeing a, a, a father once in Pakistan who had lost everything, his, his house, his son had been killed, another son was badly injured. He carried his son, the injured son, 20 miles down the side of a, of a mountain. I saw them in a tent in a distant field. I went across to talk to these people in this tent and the mother was there and she was cooking over an open fire, all she had gathered from the relief agencies. There's a son inside there with a broken leg and internal injuries. The other son and the father, they've lost everything. And she's offering us food with them. The next morning, Osho, I see this man in the town square at dawn. All the men would come down there and they'd stand there and they'd assemble in the town square and the relief agencies would come by and they would choose men to come and work for them for the day and they'd be paid for their work. And this man was there. This man who had lost his home, his eldest son, carried his other son down a mountainside, who all he had left was a tent and some meager rations, and he was standing there in that town square looking for work to look after his family. My God, you know, the human spirit is just a phenomenal thing, and it's greater than any tyrant. You mentioned at the very start of this conversation that hope was a thing to be wary of. Stan, I've got to believe that that qualities, those qualities you've just spoken of, we're born with them. They exist yeah. in all of us. And when the chips are really, really down, we either choose, I'll pick up an AK-47 and go where the man tells me, or yeah. I'll do that. And I'd, I'd like to think <laughs> that we haven't destroyed ourselves yet because that power to care for each other is a little stronger. It's a hard one for me because I think I want to believe that too. And I think that's potentially that's right. But God, my God, I see how easily and quickly we can yeah. bend to tyranny. And I've yeah. often, I've struggled with this idea. Are we just hardwired for hatred and suspicion of the other? 
we put up these razor wires and we put up borders and we arm ourselves to defend against other people. Um, you know, when offered a choice between freedom and security, how often, how easily we take security and we abandon freedom, even in allowing the worst of atrocities. You know, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, he said that the German people, and you know, this was again influenced by the sort of philosophical ideas about what it is to be German, blood and soil, tribally German. And he said the German people would rather be dominated by the strong leader than to dominate the weak leader. And he said they would rather the ideology without rival than the promise of liberal freedom. The ideology without rival rather than the promise of liberal freedom. And I've seen that so often. And I think that tension between, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature, the man who will get up and look for work when his family has nothing, the people who will offer me the first food at the breaking of the fast, the people who who will stand in front of the bullet for other people, the people who will endure, are they the aberration? Or, or is that in all of us? I think that's the, that's the thing I constantly wrestle with. When you speak of that Hitler quote, that is for people who are still denying death, mate, I feel. Yeah. That's for people yeah. who are still denying death and still want someone to save them from the uncomfortable feeling of, I'm going to die. Yes. We choose security because security is, oh, you know, if all the teachers have guns, I don't have to worry about it. It's like, no, I might, you know. <laughs> Personally, in my heart, I feel that the acceptance <laughs> of death and the acceptance of the finite nature of, of life <laughs> frees you from a lot of that frees you from searching for strong men. But that's just me. I'll- and you know how powerful that strong man can be, Osher? My God, you know how that the strong man can be so intimidating and convincing. And I, I watched a um, documentary. I was up early one morning and there was this documentary on about Goering and the Nuremberg trials. And the way that he, you know, there were American soldiers there wanting his autograph. <laughs> he would walk into that, courtroom with just this self-belief and lecturing other people saying, of course, we're going to die. Of course, these people are going to kill us. Meet your death in a way that would make you proud to be German. And, and people bowing to that. You know, it's, um, yeah. it is the fear of death that we all have and the fearlessness that tyrants sometimes will have that so intimidate us and cower us. The full conversation with Stan Grant is absolutely well worth a listen. We talk about his time in Hong Kong, his time in Beijing, how deeply history matters, and also his advice as to why it's important to seize moments that are precious. Yeah, well worth it. Stan's a man who knows, all right? Uh, He's an extraordinary man, and I'm so grateful that his voice is in this country because he's amazing. Episode 381 to check it out. Thank you to everyone that helped make this show today. Abby Benno, who produced this show. Andy Ma, who did audio and video post. Ben Richardson, who's my business partner. And Toe who made the music. Thanks for listening. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com. See you soon. See you Friday. <laughs>